Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'd like to formally welcome you to our brand new JLI course called This Can Happen. So I need to tell you that this course is unlike anything we've ever done before. Even if you've taken JLI um, courses with me before, those are the six-week courses with the textbooks that we love. So it, I've taught many of these over the last, I want to say, 13, 14 years, <coughs> at least three a year. Um, I have participated in, uh, in, in many different areas within JLI. This is the first course that I have actually authored a lesson for flagship JLI, and I am super excited to share this lesson with you. Not tonight. Tonight is not the lesson that I authored, so you have to stick with me for all six lessons, and then I need you to identify which one you think I wrote, and you're wondering, well, how would you possibly know that? So that's why you guys get paid the big bucks. That's what you have to do is figure out which class I authored. Hey, Robbie, wish your mom happy birthday. Hey, hey, buddy. Okay, so listen, here's the deal. The, 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 uh, the challenge is going to be to identify. It's not tonight. It's not in tonight's lesson. So if you're not fully signed on to the course, now you know what you need to do, at least to figure out which, which lesson I authored. But there are other reasons why this is a unique course, which I'll get into in a moment. But first, but first we need to mention and we need to, um, I need to share and extend a very, very uh, warm thank you to our very generous course sponsors. Um, Eve Bogan, Sarah Howell and David Leon, Bill and Pam Lewis, Joy Maxey, Jay and Susan Rosenheck, Ronnie and Madeline Spiegelman, and Roger and Ayala Wartel. Thank you so much for your sponsorships, and you are literally bringing Torah study into our community, and really, as you see tonight, into our nation and beyond, and even internationally. And may the merit of the Torah study indeed bring you tremendous blessings and all of your heart's desires for the good. And let us all say, Amen. Um, I want to begin with a story. The story goes that there's a fellow driving his brand new Tesla. Right? I'm sure you guys have heard of a Tesla? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's one of those things. So a guy, a fellow is driving his brand new Tesla. And he is speeding down a very windy highway. By the way, I'm muting everybody just for a clean background, but at any time, unmute to jump in on questions and discussions. Really, jump in, but just for a clean background, I just muted everybody. Um, <coughs> fellow speeding, not really paying too much attention, and as he's flying by, he sees two guys on the side of the road holding up a big sign. He slows down, and he's trying to read the sign, and he sees the sign says, the end is near. He rolls down his windows, and he says to the guy, to the two fellows, you guys are nutjobs. The end is near. Take your, you know, apocalyptic stuff somewhere else. He rolls up his window and he speeds off. And a few moments later, the two fellows holding the sign, they hear a screeching of the tires and a massive crash. And one guy turns to the other, one of the sign holders turns to the other and says, you know, maybe instead the sign should have said bridge out. Bridge out. Um, yeah, thank you, Jerry. Good, right? Bridge out or the end is near. Here's the deal. When we talk about the end of days, when we talk about the end of times, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And what I think about 
when I hear these phrases, end of days, are these kind of apocalyptic <coughs> cults or other religious beliefs that believe in some sort of um, <coughs> Armageddon or apocalypse or some sort of death and doom and destruction that will happen at the end of times and some sort of massive reckoning or um, judging of sinners that will happen amidst all this fire and fury. The question is, and this is what we're going to cover over these six weeks, what is the Jewish take on the so-called end of days? What is the Jewish perspective on the Messianic era? Sure, we've talked about it in many different contexts, but a course that focuses exclusively on Judaism's belief and vision for the future, that is something that we've never, at least I've never taught in this setting. And so I am so thrilled to explore this with you. In Hebrew, this idea that we're speaking of has a name. There's a Hebrew name for it, and it's called Mashiach. You can call it Mashiach, Messianic Era, End of Days, whatever you call it, it's the same concept, and it's what we need to explore in this course. What does Judaism believe is going to happen? What is the nature of reality as it will unfold? Is it actually a time of judgment and payback to sinners? Will we need to, to get a pair of white Nikes and some Kool-Aid? Like what is the, and of course I'm referring to uh, various doomsday cults that have popped up throughout the last, uh, I don't know, several decades. So here is the question. What is the Jewish take on the Messianic era on the end of days? This vision is unique to Judaism, and it's what we're going to explore in depth over the next six weeks together. So here are, I'm going to give you a quick summary. These are <coughs> the six topics we're going to explore in this series, and it's going to be the six classes. Number one, the physical shift. What changes physically in the world? Lesson two is going to be about the spiritual shift. What will change spiritually in the world? Lesson three is going to be about the catalyst for global change. What is the catalyst for this change? Lesson four, we talk about the long march of history, how all events in history up until now, have paved the way for this next step. Number five, class five, is going to speak about the messianic process. What is the process by which this better time or this time unfolds? And finally, lesson six, I'm calling the end game. What does it all look like? These are the six lessons. These are the six topics. If you think, what do I need to know about Mashiach for, the Messiah, messianic era it's it's removed from my reality right now i've got stuff going on right i have uh deadlines and bills to pay and and things to do and movies to see and netflix and schtitzel to catch up on trust me you are in for a wild ride and a massive treat you are going to absolutely love this we are going to be digging in to this core jewish belief as to where 
all of this is headed. I must say that this is going to be quite important and quite practical because think about it. If we don't know where we're headed, so then where are we going? Knowing the destination radically informs our present and our choices, our, our, next, our next actions. So knowing where we're headed helps us figure out not, not only how to get there, but what to do in the here and now. And that is what we're speaking of in this course. <coughs> this course, to inform us on these topics, is going to be pulling from classic Jewish texts. I'm speaking about Maimonides. I'm talking about teachings of Kabbalah. So we'll be as comfortable in the realm of Jewish law and philosophy as we will be in Jewish spiritual thought. We're going to be pulling on all sorts of, of, of sources. The common denominator will be all traditional sources, authentic Jewish sources, explaining an authentic Jewish topic. So, everything we learn in this course is going to be grounded in foundational Jewish belief. I am super excited to get rolling. I'm sure you can tell by now. So let's begin. It's no secret that Jews have not had, have, have not had it easy over the last 2,000 years. Really over the last, more than that, 3,500 years. But certainly in the last 2,000 years, things have been difficult for the Jewish people. Our people have faced just the most unspeakable forms of persecution, horrors, expulsions, destructions, crusades, inquisitions, auto de fas, pogroms, the Holocaust, you name it, we as a people have experienced it. And for so many Jews, and this is key point number one for tonight's class, for so many Jews, what got them through the darkest of nights, what kept them going when all hope seemed to be lost, was the belief in Mashiach, in a better time, in a better world. The belief, actually more than just belief, the trust that a better time is coming. <coughs> the difference between belief and trust is that belief is, I believe it could happen, trust is, I know it will. So it wasn't just a belief that Mashiach could come, but a trust that Mashiach is coming. And Mashiach, as defined in Judaism, as we'll see tonight, is a better time, a healed world, a perfected world. What we talk about when we think of tikkun olam, a world repaired, that's exactly what the Jewish understanding of Mashiach is. This belief in Mashiach is not some sort of fringe idea held by some. It is central to Jewish faith. In fact, Maimonides includes it not as one, but really different parts of it as two of the 13 principles of Jewish faith. Maimonides famously articulates 13 foundational Jewish beliefs. Now, although Torah and mitzvot, 613 mitzvot are very important, but he distills them into 13 foundational ideas. Not all make the list. Not all 613 make the list. Only 13 make that list. So I want to share with you. We're going to jump in right now with text number one. Um, and I'm going to share with you what Maimonides, well, inspired by Maimonides' list of the 13 principles, this is an articulation or declaration of the conviction of belief number 12. Um, for those of you that have the book, <coughs> you can follow along from your book. 
If you don't yet have the book, I shared the PDF a few minutes before class. If you don't have that either, then I will pull it up on the screen. The truth is you can look at the screen anyway. It's probably more convenient. Okay, here we go. Um, text number one. Um, Steve, if you'll please unmute yourself and jump in, I'd be very grateful. We Jews have many beliefs. We believe that God created the world. Hold on one second, one second, one second. Hold on, hold on. Do text one. I'm not sure where you read. Do text one on page number three. Um, you see where it's the animamen, I believe? Yes. Okay. I believe with perfect faith <coughs> the coming of the Mashiach. Although we may tarry, I await his arrival every day. Perfect. And again, this is not necessarily the way that Maimonides wrote it. But this is the way that's been famously um, articulated in Jewish thought, including in the Siddur and many editions of the prayer book. It formulates these 13 principles as articulations of faith, beginning with animamen, I believe. And this one, number 12, is, I believe, with perfect faith in the coming of Mashiach. In fact, Maimonides famously writes that so important is the belief in the coming of Mashiach that without it, you don't have Judaism. In other words, it's so central to Judaism that you cannot cut out this belief in Mashiach without harming the core of what Judaism is. Again, it's not some other idea in Judaism. It's not some fringe idea in Judaism. It's not something that only super-religious, ultra-Orthodox, or whatever it is people believe in, this is something that is at the core of Judaism. And that we're going to explore throughout this course, why it is so central. That's not necessarily the focus of tonight's class. But just know this, that Mashiach, the belief in the Messianic era, a better time, is absolutely at the core of Judaism. But what exactly is the nature of this belief? What is it that Jews have been waiting for and pining for and believing in <coughs> for all these centuries? And why is it so powerful as to fuel and inspire literally Jewish survival? So to understand this, we need to go to the sources. The sources that talk about what will happen in the Messianic era. What is the Jewish belief in Mashiach? What does it mean? What's going to happen? So we've been talking a lot about the Messianic era, but we need to explore, so what does that actually look like? What does that actually look like? So we're going to go to the prophecies, the original prophecies in Scripture, and see just exactly what Judaism believes about the Messianic era. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with, <coughs> once again, excuse me, once again we're going to begin with Maimonides. And Maimonides does a great job of crystallizing the Messianic prophecies. The general, like there are many different prophecies, but he crystallizes them in his work of Jewish law called Mishneh Torah. I'm going to share my screen. <coughs> and let's jump in. This is going to be text number two. And let's ask um, Dr. Maxi, please read text number two, an era of abundance. In that era, there will be no famine or war, no envy or competition, for goodness will be in abundance, and all delights will be as commonplace as dust. Maimonides writes that what is, thank you, what is the Messianic era? 
The Messianic era is, there's no famine, there's no war, there's no envy, there's no competition. Goodness abounds, the lights are common. In other words, <coughs> it's the best world that you can imagine. Imagine a world free of pain, free of suffering, free of illness, free of hate, free of violence, and filled with only good things, right? That's Mashiach. So far from this time of harsh judgment and apocalyptic uh, actions and death and doom and gloom and all sorts of horrific things happening, the Jewish perspective of Mashiach is a healed <coughs> world, a world in which there is only good and none, only the good stuff and none of the bad stuff, right? Not even the pollen, which I'm suffering with tonight apparently, not even the pollen in Atlanta, right, will be around, right, the negative stuff at least, in this messianic era. Now, this is Maimonides. The question is, where does he get it from? So what we're going to do is... <coughs> We're going to quote now, one, two, three, four, five, six, six prophecies that give us insights, tidbits as to what will happen in the Messianic era. What is this future time like from the original sources in the books of the prophets? Let me share my screen with you one more time. Let's jump in. Text number three from Zechariah. Zechariah, perhaps. Lisa, <coughs> please read this one. Eradication of poverty. On that day, there will no longer be an impoverished person in the house of God. So here, what does that mean in this prophecy? It means that there will be no more poverty. This is on that day refers to when Mashiach comes. On that day, no more poverty. <coughs> Let's do text number four. Jerry, please read text number four. This this will work better. God will give rain for your seed with which you shall sow the soil. He will give you plentiful bread, the yield of the land, and the land will be rich and abundant. There you go. God is going to give rain. There's going to be bread. There's going to be abundance. <coughs> and this is the prophecy for Plentiful food, food in abundance. Next prophecy, let's do text number five. Text number five, and let's ask Jay. Please read this one. <clears throat> Disabilities will vanish. At that time, the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. At that time, the lame shall skip like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing. Look at that. Look at that. Unbelievable. In the Messianic era at that time, no more, no more lack of sight or lack of hearing or lack of mobility or lack of speaking. All of the, the capacities of the human body <clears throat> will be restored in their perfect state. <clears throat> Take a look at text number six. Um, let's ask Charna. Charna, please jump into text number six. <clears throat> Hold on, don't forget to unmute. Oh, sorry. Cessation of hostilities. 
Nation shall not lift sword against nation, nor shall anyone train for war anymore. There you go. No more hostility. No more war. It's, it's incredible. Look at these prophecies. All right, let's continue. Text, <coughs> excuse me. Text number seven. Sylvia, please read text number seven from Isaiah. Don't forget to unmute. There you go. Disarmament. Nations shall beat their swords into plow blades and their spears into pruning trees. There you go. Not only will there not be war, but nations will turn their armaments into tools that benefit the populace, that bring life as opposed to death. The most incredible turnaround. 180 degrees. And finally, this is certainly not the final prophecy that exists about the Messianic era in Jewish scripture, but this is the last one that we're going to cite tonight. So let's do text number eight, and let's ask, um, let us ask um, David. David, Lazan, please read text number eight, Elimination of Crime. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor robbery or devastation within your court. There you go, and crime will disappear. Now, I want to tell you this. So a world, imagine a world in which there's no poverty, plenty of food, no disabilities, no national hostilities, no weapons anymore, and no crime. Does that sound like a place like we'd all like to live? <laughs> yes? Can we get behind that? I think so. <coughs> Excuse me. I think so. Imagine a world in which there was no poverty or hunger, a world in which there was no illness, a world in which there was no violence or bloodshed. That would be incredible. And we could all get on board with this. But we're talking about a future reality. And as we're talking about this, another thought might set in. And you might be thinking, and I might be thinking, we, it would be great, but there's no way this is happening. This perfect world thing, this utopia, is impossible. There's just no way that this is going to happen. In fact, I'd venture to say, I'd venture to guess, that most of us would agree that based on what's been going on for the last while, and I don't only mean the last year, I mean for the last while, that many of us believe that we're further away from this messianic ideal than ever. So I want to check in with you. I want to give you the opportunity to weigh in. <coughs> How do you feel about the state of the world? Positive or negative? Right? Raise your hand if you think that everything is amazing. Yeah? Uh, all right. Raise your hand if you're a little bit more pessimistic. Things could use some major improvement. Okay, good. All right, more hands are going up at the latter than the former. So if we're basing our response and our perception is based on what we see and hear in the news, my friends, it is definitely not good. Because what do we see on the news? Right? Unmute yourself. What do you see on the news? What do you hear about on the news? Jump in. <clears throat> The news has gotten so awful, I've had to tune it out and quit watching. 
Right? Because what does the news cover? If it bleeds, it leads. Exactly. Doom and destruction. Doom and destruction. Right? Murders and terrorism and uh, let's see what else. What else is covered in the news? Hostility. <laughs> Hostility. Illness and poverty. And all of this stuff is covered in the news. All, frankly, all of these anti-Mashiach, anti-Messianic era vices. And if you're feeling this way, if you're feeling this way, like maybe the world is um, very far away from where these prophets are talking about, you are not alone. In fact, the vast majority of people believe that things are getting worse and worse. I want to share with you a few different pieces of, of, of text and some figures. Take a look at... Um, let's, you know, I'm going to skip figure 1.1 1. 1. 1 on page... What page is that? Page 9, it looks like. Let's go to, text, uh, to page number 10. All right, take this out. <clears throat> Check this out. This is going to be... Give me one second... This is going to be, um, give me a second here, a study, <clears throat> a survey question. The last 20 years, has the proportion of the world population living in extreme poverty decreased, increased, or remained the same? This is a question that was asked, sorry, this, this, was, uh, this survey was published in 2017. The question is, in the last 20 years, has poverty gotten worse, better, no, it's like decreased, increased, or remained the same? 52%, you could see it right here on the pie chart, 52% believe that the share um, living in extreme poverty has increased over the last 20 years. 28% believe that it's remained the same, or they say they don't know. 20%, the minority, believe that it has de decreased, which means <clears throat> a full 80% of people believe that either poverty is the same or it's gotten worse in the last 20 years. Okay, that's, uh, that's with regards to poverty. What about with regards to crime? Take a look at figure 1.3 on the next page, which is in your books on page 11. Okay, perceptions of crime rates. The survey question is, is there more crime in the U.S. than there was a year ago or less? More or less crime than one year ago? This, is, this study goes all the way back to 1989. Take a look <clears throat> at the results. And it's fairly consistent, I must say. 1989, 84% of respondees are saying that it's gotten worse more crime. Only 5% said less. Same or no opinion. Let's leave those out. Consistently. 84, 84, 89, 87, 71, 64. Look, there's one play. 2001, it drops, which I think is a very um, ironic year. Um, it's ironic for that answer, at least. Um, and then it goes back up. As of 2020, 78% of people believe that there's more crime in the U.S. than a year ago. 
This is astounding. These are huge numbers. In other words, most people believe when polled in the US and even around the world, most people believe that there's more poverty and there's more crime than ever before. There's more poverty than 20 years ago and there's more crime than one year ago. This is the belief and you and I would be forgiven for believing the same thing because that's what it appears. So then if this is the perception, one might ask, so what's up with the messianic era of goodness and perfection stuff? What kind of messianic era are we talking about? In other words, is this notion of a better world, of a healed world, no poverty, no crime, no violence, no hate, is it a complete pipe dream? Is it completely out of step with reality? What is the deal? So here is the big idea. <clears throat> and this is the core idea for tonight's class. <clears throat> and that is everything we know about the state of the world is wrong. Let me phrase it differently. Everything we think we know about the current state of the world is wrong. I would say the vast majority of us, as we saw in those studies, are under a false and frankly destructive impression. You see, the reality is that things are not actually getting worse. In fact, they're getting better. They're getting so much better, it's actually astonishing. It's astounding, it's breathtaking how much better things are getting. In fact, you might call it even messianic, how good things are getting. You see, <coughs> the areas in which the world is rapidly improving are the exact areas about which the Jewish prophets foretold. Those six texts that we cited before from the books of the prophets about the world improving in various areas, no poverty and more food, etc. those are the exact areas in which we've seen exponential growth or exponential betterment than ever before. There is today less poverty, less famine and drought, less illness, less war, less violence, and less crime than ever before. You can't make this up, which is fine because you don't have to. It's all in the data. Tonight's class is called Start with the Science. We're going to look at the actual science about how the world is today. What is the state of the world? Is it actually worse or is it actually better? I've already given away where we're going with this. The world is so much better today than it's ever been. This is not a matter of belief. Like Maimonides wrote, I believe in the coming of Mashiach. This is not a matter of belief. This is a matter of fact. It's a matter of fact that the world is rapidly improving at an incredible clip. And the, the longer time marches on, the closer we get to this messianic era, the more the blessings become realized and the two points are connected. In other words, in the Jewish understanding, the Jewish conception, the closer we get to this messianic time, the more we are going to benefit from the blessings, from, the, from the, the culmination of that time, even before we finally fully arrive. If that doesn't 100% make sense, let me share this text with you and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Take a look at text 
number nine. Um, let's ask, let's see, let's ask Donna, please read text number nine, a foretaste of redemption. This is an insight from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. All of the experiences of the future redemption begin even before Mashiach's arrival. <clears throat> Just as Jewish law encourages us to sample the Shabbat foods in the hours before the onset of Shabbat, similarly, in the sixth millennium, even before the onset of the redemption, we can already sample the experiences that will fully materialize in the future. In addition to receiving a foretaste of the spiritual delights we will experience then, the instruction to taste from the Shabbat foods means, quite simply, to taste the fish. The same is true of the era preceding the redemption. We will then have physical blessings in abundance, and we will be able to serve God out of material prosperity. I love that quote. I love that quote, and I'll tell you why I love it so much. I love that quote because it talks about one of my favorite topics, which is Shabbos food. I mean, who doesn't like talking about Shabbos food? It's fantastic. So what's the deal with Shabbos food? It's very simple. <clears throat> it's very simple. On Shabbos, right, we're not supposed to cook. So we cook before Shabbos. And if you're cooking for Friday night and Shabbos lunch and Shabbos afternoon, if you're cooking already for a long time, you've got to make a lot of food. And if you're making a lot of food, you make some extra. Why do you make some extra? Because Friday afternoon, when you're hanging around the kitchen or hanging around the house, you got all this good food cooking, right? And somebody comes over to the kitchen and says, hey, what's cooking? And you're like, well, I got challah, I got soup, I got fish, I got chicken, I got this, I got that, I got kugel, my specialty, potato kugel, right? So, and they say, wow, it smells so good. Can I have some? What are you going to say? No? It's for tomorrow? It's for tonight? Come on, that's mean. So what do you do? You take from the stuff that's cooking and you, take, you, give, it, you give it a taste, right? You do a bit of a taste. A little taste test. That is actually in Jewish law, it's a mitzvah. There's a verse, there's a verse that's associated with it, which means that we're supposed to have a taste of the future, so to speak, a taste of what's going to be before it actually is. So a taste of Shabbat food before it's actually Shabbat. And so the Rebbe says something really beautiful. And that is just like it is with Shabbos food, so do it is with Messianic era blessings. Right? Just like it is with Shabbat food, that we eat a bit of the kugel, a little bit of the chicken soup, a little bit of the challah, a little bit of uh, the gefilte fish before Shabbat, so too we start tasting the Messianic era even before it arrives. The closer we get, the more it's ready to go. Are you with me on that? Because if you come around Friday morning, 6 a.m., you're probably not going to get a chicken soup a bowl of chicken soup. Come to me, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, you're going to get some chicken soup. The closer we get to the Messianic era, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., so to speak, right in the, in the arc of time, the closer we get, the more the food is ready to taste. The more the blessings, the, the unbelievable blessings that mark the Messianic era, the more they are available for us to enjoy. The Rebbe says, look around the world and look at the trend. And Don't watch the news. I mean, you could also watch the news. But don't base 
your reality based on what they choose to cover. That's not the reality of the world. You want to know what the reality is? Look at the data. I know that's been the big buzzword lately. Follow the science. Look at the data. Let's apply it. Let's apply it to messianic prophecies. You will be shocked as to what you see. But again, the spiritual understanding of this, it's not randomly, you know, um, the world is randomly um, evolving for the better. That's too random. It's the closer we get to Mashiach, to the Messianic era, which is literally, as we read it before, six prophecies, which is marked by these beautiful blessings. The closer we get, the more we can taste of these blessings. And that's what you and I are experiencing now. But again, as LeVar Burton used to say on Reading Rainbow, don't take my word for it. Let's look at this. Does anybody get that reference? Any nods? All right. My mom is saying yes. All right. <coughs> Let's look at the science. So actually, let me pause here for a moment and take questions, clarifications, comments. Let's do a few minutes of conversation, and then I'm going to jump in to our scientific discussion. All right, jump in, folks. Sid, go ahead. Don't forget to unmute. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not convinced yet that we're better. Okay. But you're going you're gonna to prove it by the science, hopefully. Uh, and then as an engineer, I'm going to be convinced. <laughs> However, um, I have long felt that things had to get worse before the Mashiach came. Would you like to comment on that? Sure. Listen, there's, um, <coughs> there's different philosophies out there. The one that we're taking is a pretty mainstream one that says that, yes, there are, there are other prophecies and other things that's, that are sometimes conflicting or contradictory or confusing. Maimonides famously writes, be careful what you read because a lot of them are allegory and they're not the literal meaning of it. And we have a clear path that our sages have told us about the Messianic era, which is what we're following in this course. In other words, we are following the traditional understanding of the path. And, um, and I mean, look, there are setbacks even along the way, right? There are steps back. But predominantly, by, by and large, there is a tremendous progression um, toward, um, toward, toward the finish line, toward those, those goals, so to speak. Um, Richard, go ahead. From a rabbi years ago, that possibly uh, World War II and uh, the Holocaust was the uh, precursor. Yeah. Listen, those are apocalyptic uh, notions of Mashiach. We're taking a different view. Got it. We're taking, we're following what Maimonides writes, what Rambam writes. Not even a Kabbalist, right? Not even a Chabadnik. This is straight up Rambam. Everybody loves Rambam, right? You can't go wrong with Rambam. Rambam writes. I mean, this is this is Rambam. Yeah, by the way, the only, um, the only authority to write about Mashiach in, about the Messianic era, in a halachic book, in a book of Jewish law, is Rambam, Mishnah Torah, which we quoted before. 
the only sage in Jewish history to write about Mashiach, not as a philosophy, but in Jewish law, is Rambam, Maimonides. And again, we are following Rambam, a very traditional understanding of how things are unfolding. All right, I'm looking around. Mom. Yeah, I just want to point out one thing that I don't know about other cities, but I know for a fact that I have read that the donations, the charitable donations from foundations and individuals has increased so much in the past several years that I've been reading about this, uh, particularly in Pittsburgh. Hello, Pittsburgh, Calvin and Hobbes. But I am sure it, the statistics hold true elsewhere, too. <clears throat> there is an incredible, yes. I'd yeah. also like to just make, make one point. Maybe it's good that the, that the news says doom and gloom, because that inspires people to be more kind, more generous, more giving. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a left-handed approach or, you know, this no, way. I, honestly, that's a very positive way to look at it. And that's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see the... I could see that understanding of it. But yeah, for, to your first point, um, 100%. I mean, I agree with you, and not just because you're my mother. But yeah, I mean, this, but that's also true. But no, the, the, the notion of generosity, that's not one of the, that's not necessarily one of the items that we're going to study with data tonight. But anecdotally, I mean, we live in a world where there is so much generosity to people that, frankly, we don't even know. Like, we hear about something in Haiti, an earthquake in Haiti, boom. We open up our phones and we start texting donations around across the globe to people that we don't even know because of a spirit of generosity. And that's, you know, just one anecdotal example. But, yeah, I, I would agree with, with, uh, with your assertion that there is just tremendous um, generosity and, and, and a giving spirit that, uh, that, is, that is newer than older. It's not, it hasn't always been around. Let's, uh, yeah, go ahead. 30 seconds, most seriously. Uh, years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was a newscaster who actually publicly announced he was resigning, stepping down, because he could not deal with the negativity anymore. He said, it's all they do. Wow. What's bad, what's bad, what sells, what sells, and that's what they put on. So if you listen to it, they go crazy. There's yeah. a lot of good things happening, but they intentionally do not report it because it's, it's, it's stimulating, you know? Yeah. It's a bad well, listen, we're going to speak about that at the end of the class a little bit about why, why the news, I, I did a little bit before, but we'll talk about like why the news is so negative. But yeah, I mean, not to, not to give too much away, I mean, studies have shown that, uh, that when you're afraid, it, 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 it releases certain chemicals in the brain and it gets you to focus and, and pay attention. And listen, it's, it's good for sales. That's the bottom line. It's good for sales. So that's it. It's, it's, it's a... It, Okay, anyway, we, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, okay, let me just check in if there's anything else. Roger, you want to jump in? Don't forget to unmute. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a very, uh, totally apolitical comment, so it's an observation. Um, I've had a number of graduate students over the years uh, a few from China, and a couple of them told me they were shocked when they listened to the news in this country when they first came here, because it's exactly the opposite in Chinese news. Hmm. They tell you about everything that's going well. They don't tell you very much at all about anything that's gone bad. Wow. And they were uh, kind of amazed and shocked at this cultural difference. That is fascinating. 
I had no idea. In the last 10, 15 years, you know, maybe even on that order. I don't know what it's like right now, but it isn't. It was always interesting to me. They often said that. Um, that is intriguing. That is very interesting. That is very interesting. Well, we're going to see some good news out of China a little bit later. I know there's a lot to talk about with China, but we're going to, we're going to, yeah. Right, no, I understand. Right, right, no, 100%. Um, a different approach to, uh, to what gets covered in the news, right? All right, so let's jump into the data. Let's look at the science so that we can actually assess, is the world getting worse or by some sort of miracle, is it actually better, and not only better, but much better than the way it appears? Now, you know where I'm headed with this, so let's take a look. Remember Zachariah's um, prophecy about poverty being eliminated? That was the first one that we covered. Um, if you have your book, or you can look up your PDF that I sent earlier, you can scroll back to text number three. Text number three was all about a prophecy about no more Poverty. I'm actually going to pull it up in my book. Um, on that day, there will no longer be an impoverished person in the house of God. No more poverty. So not too long ago, that type of prophecy would seem absolutely ludicrous. But today, it's actually happening. And let me explain, based on the data, the percentage of people who are living in extreme poverty has dropped so dramatically, it is actually unbelievable. I'm going to share my screen with you. Take a look. And we're going to have a lot of charts. It's, it's a little bit different than the way we usually have. I mean, we have a lot of text also, but this is going to be um, data-driven. Take a look at figure 1.5 right here in your books. This is page 15. And take a look at global poverty rates since, I guess that's like 1820, early 1800s, and look at how global poverty rates have dropped so dramatically. And if you think it's, well, it's over the last 200 years, yeah, of course, take a look at the next one, which is just the last few decades, right? World population living in extreme poverty from 1981 to 2017, look at how dramatically it has dropped. It is unbelievable. And in just the last few decades, from not only the last few decades, from 2008, the number of people around the world living in extreme poverty has fallen, listen to this number, by nearly 200,000 each and every day. I'm going to say that again. Since about 2008, the number of people around the world that have risen out of extreme poverty has been close to 200,000 people every single day. That is absolutely remarkable. I'm going to share my screen again for the following article. Take a look. Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. Um, let's ask Mindy. Are you up to reading? Yes, absolutely. All right. Good, good, good. So happy birthday again and uh, read something that has a very positive outlook to it. A daily upbeat headline. If you're depressed by the state of the world, let me toss out an idea. In the long arc of human history, 2019 has been the best year ever. As recently as 1981, 42% of the planet's population endured extreme poverty. 
defined by the United Nations as living on less than about $2 a day. That portion has plunged to less than 10% of the world's population now. Every day for a decade, newspapers could have carried the headline, another 170,000 moved out of extreme poverty yesterday. Or if one uses a <laughs> the headline could have been, the number of people living on more than $10 a day increased by 245,000 yesterday. So talk about positive news, right? And what a positive headline could look like. Imagine that every single day, front page of the New York Times could say another 170,000 people moved out of extreme poverty, or the number of people living on more than $10 a day increased by 245,000 uh, people. That's, those are incredible numbers, and those are powerful. Now, you might be thinking, well, one second. I mean, that's, we're talking about extreme poverty. We're talking about, like, the worst of the worst cases. So, I mean, does that mean that everyone is like super wealthy and able to afford that Tesla that we started the class with, that, uh, the, uh, the joke? No, of course not. But this is certainly a tremendous achievement. In fact, according to our good friends, Bill and Melinda Gates, well, we're trying to be good friends, right? So Bill and Melinda Gates write the following. I'm going to read this one, text 11. I love this. This huge drop and the number of people living on less than temp sorry living on less than $1.90 per day which is considered to be extreme poverty is among the most underappreciated and most important developments of our generation you see that bill and melinda gates in the new york times the idea that people are climbing out of extreme poverty and keep, keeping on climbing is one of the most underappreciated and most important developments of our generation. But that key word to me is underappreciated. Because who's talking about it? Who's talking about it? The news doesn't talk about it. But if you look, it's out there. So the data is in, <coughs> and the trend is clear. We, in fact, are well on our way to eliminating poverty altogether. In fact, the United Nations, feeling this trend, has pledged to eradicate poverty worldwide by the year 2030. That is the pledge of the United Nations. Now, clearly, I said it before, I'll say it again, we're not where we need to be yet on this. We need to move from eliminating extreme poverty to ensuring that everyone has what they need to live and to live like I mentioned. But we're headed absolutely in the right direction. And this direction directly points to the, fulfill, to the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. In other words, Zechariah, Zechariah, from text 3, would be getting a lot of nachas from what the trend is thus far. Now let's talk about food. Because who doesn't like to talk about food? Right back in the day, and this is not that long ago, it was impossible, or nearly impossible, to provide enough food and water for large populations. Famines were the norm. Food shortages expected. Droughts and water shortages also to be expected. In fact, unmute yourself. Can you tell me where in the Bible do we read about a famine, a food shortage? Where in the Bible do we have a food shortage? 
The Jews in the desert, good. Where else? Ezekiel. Ezekiel, good. Where else? That is what drove um, Jacob to go into Egypt. Yeah, Egypt, Joseph. Remember, he, he saved money. Sorry, he saved food from the years of plenty for the years of famine. Good. Where else in the Torah do we find famine? Who else? Who else? Who famous? <coughs> who fa <coughs> sorry, man. Who famously was told by God to go to Israel and then upon reaching Israel experienced famine? Abraham. Abraham. Good. Good. Abraham. You see, droughts and food shortages, they were a normal thing. The Bible, the Torah does not consider it to be an anomaly. It's like, yeah, there was a famine. Sure, there was a famine. There was no food. There was no water. Right? It was a normal course of life. To not have. It was normal. It was considered to be expected. But, and this is where things are headed, with the advent of new technologies, and I'm speaking of technologies including farming technologies, refrigeration, transportation, to name just a few, we are now able to pretty reliably supply food and water around the world. And I need to emphasize this was unheard of not that long ago, and today it is our reality. The modern availability of food is even more astonishing considering the dire predictions of the 1960s and the 1970s about humanity's future due to what they called the population bomb. Who remembers that, the population bomb? Yeah, remember that? It was very scary. Someone unmute and tell me what that was going, like what was going to happen with the population bomb? Why would it spell the end of humanity as we know it? Because too many people would not have any food to eat. Too many people and not enough food. And the notion was, it wasn't even like a fear. It was, it was like an absolute given. It was a reality. Right, we're at... I think it was at 3 billion people back in the 1960s, something like that. 3 billion people, and the, and the population is exploding, and there's not enough food. Now, there won't be enough food. No, there won't be nearly enough food for billions of more people, and we stand at the precipice of absolute disaster, of absolute horrific times, it right? Wasn't just that there wasn't going to be enough food. There was going to be mass murder of people fighting over natural resources. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, it's going, it's, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be horrific. There's not going to be enough. It's all of this stuff. Now, the reality is that the population has grown from, I believe, in the 1960s, and someone can look up while we're doing this. I don't, I don't mind being fact-checked. I believe about 3 billion in the 1960s or so, somewhere around that number, to, what is it, close, to, I mean, 8 billion today? We're pushing 9 billion? In other words, we've almost tripled the world population. And yet, what happened to the food shortage? What happened to the, the shortage of resources? But let's focus specifically on food because that's this next prophecy that we're dealing with, right? So what's with the food shortage? And, and, uh, and, and talking about they're not reversing with the population, but only increasing. So let's take a look at the data. Let's see what happened. 
Um, I'm going to share my screen with you once again. Take a look at figure 1.7. Global annual rate of people dying due to famine per 100,000. And look at how the rates dropped from the 1960s when this fear was at its peak, 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000, it bumps a little bit, but look at how low it is in the last decade or so. People dying due to famine has severely dropped over the last several decades, and that is considering the fact that so many more people are vying for food and other resources. So what's, what's the answer? The answer is, at that point in time, when all of that fear was being discussed and all of those, you know, those, uh, those dire predictions were being made, they could not yet predict the, the technology that was yet to be born, yet to be created, that would assist in producing food at unheard of rates, as well as being able to move the food, distribute it literally around the globe. I, 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 it's, it's incredible when you walk into a supermarket, and again, I, I know there's different ways to look at. Food has also become somehow politicized as well. I'm not gonna look at it, those issues, but I just wanna say simple, simply this. You go to the produce aisle in your average American supermarket, and there's literally product from across the globe. And even if currently in the US, something is out of season, don't worry about that. We got a place in the world that makes it, where it, is in where it grows it, where it is in season, and we can get it here tomorrow, and it's still 59 cents a pound. No big deal. It's like, sometimes you wonder, how is it even possible that these um, uh, you know, these uh, products that come from around the world are, st are still so inexpensive. And I know that within that system, there's imperfection and there's stuff that has to be fixed and corrected. But we're speaking about the availability of food. And that is the, the focus right now. And when it comes to availability of food, the world has never been in better shape. Let's talk about water. Let's talk about availability of clean drinking water. Clean water is dramatically more accessible around the world today than at any point in human history. It's not even close. Listen to this stat. Over the course of 2018, 300,000 new people gained access to clean drinking water every single day. Again, this was stats that came in from 2018. I'm sure there's more, maybe there are more recent stats, but this is what I saw for 2018. 300,000 new people each day gaining access to clean drinking water. And this is due to, to movement from companies and, and organizations and nonprofits to bring drinking water. The credit is, there are many, many people to credit for this, but the reality is that there is the ability to drink clean water in a way that is unprecedented. In fact, I want to share this ironic tidbit. There is so much abundance today in many... One second, let me, let me step back for half a second. All of this being said, I know that there are still places in the world in which there's not as much food as, as is needed, and there's not the water that's needed, 100%. 
Which is why, by the way, this course is looking at what Mashiach is going to be and not telling us, right, oh, by the way, you didn't get the email, Mashiach is here already. That's not the course, Mashiach is here. This course is, we're rapidly, right, we're moving toward that place and we're already tasting from those incredible blessings that are foretold about that time. So yeah, it's not perfect. But there's been incredible advancements being made in this space. There is enough food. There is enough water. There are the resources to make sure that everybody on this planet has what to eat and has what to drink. And in not that much time, it's going to happen that that will be the case, that no one is going to be left behind. It's happening. And it's going to continue to happen. It's not even a doubt. Anyone who doubts this just has not been watching the trends. If you watch the trends, it's, that's where it's headed. And it's, um, what is the phrase I'm looking for? It's, um, it, not only are things continuing to increase, but it, it increases the innovation and, and the rate of acceleration. Incrementally. It increases incrementally. Exactly. It's incremental. This, this way. Yeah, incrementally. It's, it's exponentially. Exponentially. Yeah, incrementally. Oh, not incrementally. Exponentially. Yes, correct. Exponentially. There's exponential growth happening over here. And, and it's, it's, it's like this curve that keeps on going up. So the idea of food shortages and water shortages very soon, everywhere is going to be a thing of the past where we'll look back and say, what was that? A world in which there wasn't enough food and water to go around. Are you kidding me? And we're going to hit 9 billion and 10 billion and 11 billion, whatever it is. And we have the technology and the resources to make sure that everybody has what to eat and what to drink. In fact, I started saying this before. You know what the irony is? The irony is that the problem is now the other way. Right? What's the problem? You walk into a, a supermarket and there's too much variety. You ever have that? You went to buy ketchup and now you're paralyzed with fear, you're like, which ketchup to buy? There's 30 ketchups here, 30 different bottles of ketchup. I don't know what to purchase. Um, I want to share a text with you that I think is uh, slightly interesting, that's interesting and, and on, this, uh, on this topic. I don't know if it's humorous, but it's, um, it's interesting. Text number 12, let's ask um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Richard. Did you read yet? No, I've not read, but your mother should always be right. Okay. <laughs> your mother is and always will be right. I want to make that clarification. Yes, that is true. All right, take a look at text 12 with somehow the CBS logo above it. All right, take it away. A new survey by the Consumer Reports National Research Center confirms that option overload can be a hindrance as well as a help. Almost 80% of the 2,818 subscribers surveyed said they found an especially wide range of choices in the various months. And 36% of those said they were overwhelmed by the information they had to process to make a buying decision. Between 1975 and 2008, the number of products in the average supermarket swelled from an average of 8,948 8, to almost 47,000. According to the Food Marketing Institute, a trade group, in the past few years, that number has fallen slightly, in part because of growth, of growth spread among smaller stores. Consumers have always had choices, but today's options have exploded beyond all reasons. As Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice, Harper's Collins, 2003, 
and a psychology professor at Swarthmore College. Thank you. And so the, 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 this, um, this article, or this Consumer Report, Reports, I don't know, essay survey, is titled, What to Do When There Are Too Many Product Choices on the Store Shelves. Look at that. What's the problem? There's too much choice. <clears throat> There's too much choice. I actually once read an interesting article that said that um, one of the reasons why a place like Costco does so well is because they actually limit the choice of the consumer. You walk in, and there's like one type of ketchup. That's it, right? You need mustard? Yeah, one of those. Mayo? That's, that's it. Now, you got a big container of it, so it'll last you a while, but you got one. You got one thing to choose from, right? We live in a time, and it's, it, it's like we take it for granted, and then we fetch, and then we, you know, everything is terrible, but the reality is we have access to food and to water in unprecedented times. And you know what? And you know what? It would be funny if it wasn't true about this overload at supermarkets, but it is true, and it's not funny. It's actually a blessing. And I'll tell you this, Isaiah, you know, like the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, I told you so. He's saying, I because you know what Isaiah said? God will give you rain for your seed with which you shall sow the soil. He will give you plentiful bread, the yield of the land, and the land will be rich and abundant. In the Messianic times, Isaiah says, there's going to be abundance of food. And my friends, we're living, the, we're living the prophecy now. No, it's not perfect. That's why I'm saying throughout this lesson, Mashiach is not here yet. But it's like, we're not having the Shabbat meal yet. You don't get the full tray of Kugel, but you get a little bit of Kugel, right? I mean, you're well on your way to Kugelville. I mean, it's happening, right? It tastes pretty. The chicken soup maybe is not like, you know, where it needs to be, but it's like, it's super close to getting there, right? That's where we are with this. We are living in incredibly blessed times. And I, I know I'm saying the same caveats. It's not perfect. Room for improvement. We have, listen, you don't need me to drop the laundry list of things that are wrong. Tonight's, the objective of tonight's class is to show you what's going right and to open up our eyes to a different reality. There's a lot, there's tremendous progress that has been made. Let's talk about health. Let's talk about physical health. Okay, so another area in which we've seen just dramatic improvement is with regard to health. Human lifespan, the human lifespan has shot up exponentially in the last few centuries. Take a look at this next chart that I want to share with you. You can also have it in your books on page 21. Okay, take a look at global life. Man, I may disagree with those icons, but whatever. Um, take a look at global, at the global life expectancy going back 200 years from 1800 to 2015. The global life expectancy in 1800, I mean, is that even real? Is that even legit? I mean, it's in the book. I'm assuming that it's, it's legit, but that's around 30. And today, we're pushing 80 years, right? I mean, this is like, it's incredible, the, the lifespan. Life ex but this is not U.S. This is around the world, global life expectancy. We're not cherry-picking, you know, the United States or Western countries or democratic countries. This is across the globe. Across the globe, it's over 70 years. 
That's, that, that's mind-boggling. You tell me somebody living in a royal palace somewhere, yeah, with servants and caviar, I don't know if that's a thing, right? But whatever, there's living 70 years, gesundheit hate. But you tell me that globally people are living over 70 years, that, my friends, is progress. I'm going to put this up again because, I don't know, this one's really, um, really doing it for me. Okay, oh, hold on one second, I clicked on the wrong thing. All right, hold on. Boom. That, that arc, that line, that upward trend is remarkable. It's remarkable. By the way, at the same time, child mortality has gone way down, has plummeted. Now, so what, what's behind it? Well, obviously, I mean, maybe not so obviously, I mean, the key, one of the keys, major keys to this, has been the availability of medicines and vaccines, right? Raise your hand. Let's do a, let's do a little uh, poll question. Who amongst us here tonight has witnessed, personally witnessed the case of smallpox? Now, I, I know whenever I ask a, a raise your hand question, there's a certain percentage that are, hands are not going to go up. But no, I mean, really, anybody witness, personally witness smallpox? Baruch Hashem not. Okay, thank God not. Now, if I would have asked this question 200 years ago on Zoom, I know it's a little mind-bendy. Don't question the process, but just stay with me. If I asked this question 200 years ago, you know that every hand would have gone up? Every single hand would have gone up. Next question. Has anyone here personally witnessed the case of polio? Okay, a few hands have gone up. A few hands have gone up. If I would have asked this question 60 years ago, every hand would have gone up. And the reality is that the reason for this, for this dramatic shift, is due to the incredible strides we've made in medicine. It's simply breathtaking. Take a look. Take a look. I'm going to share my screen with you once again at this next figure, page 22, figure 1.9. This is just some of the progress in disease eradication, prevention, and control over the last while. Eradicated. In the eradicated column, we have smallpox, polio, rabies, syphilis, Tetanus. By the way, it's, uh, it's worthwhile to mention, since we are on a Pittsburgh theme, that polio, right, the, vac the polio vaccine was developed by Dr. Salk from Squirrel Hill. Am I correct on this? From Pitt. From Pitt. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah. But I think he lived in, in the neighborhood, right? Who can... Who can uh, Confirm that. Mom, did he live? Uh... Yes, and Sabin also. The next one, the sugar cube, was Sabin. And he was also from Pittsburgh. There you go. So some Pittsburgh pride over here. All right. The Monopoly. Uh, there you go. This, uh, this is, uh, we have a trend here. Let's talk about the next column, reduced. Malaria, measles, tuberculosis, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, mumps. Manageable. Diabetes and even AIDS. Today, is manageable. This is due to the progress that we've, that we've had, we've achieved. 
when it comes to medical science, medical research, vaccinations, medications, etc. It is absolutely incredible. You know what? You can call it whatever you want. I'm going to call it miraculous. And you're going to say, oh, it's not miraculous. It's research. And I'll say exactly. That's what I said. We're just using different words. It's miraculous. It's straight up miraculous. To go from a global lifespan of 30 to 70-something, 70 74, 75, whatever it is exactly, over 70 in a span of a few hundred years is absolutely mind-boggling. By the way, I should mention, and I didn't quote this before because we don't have it in the books, but I wish we did so we know what to add next time. Isaiah 65.20. You can look it up. Isaiah 65.20, but you don't need to because I'll just tell you the quote. And the youth who is 100 shall die. That's what Isaiah writes. You know what that means, the youth who is 100 shall die? What does that, what does that sound like? Was that, what is that say, saying? That in the Messianic era, what's the lifespan? 100. 100 is the life expectancy. And at 100, still youthful. Now, if you're wondering when Mashiach comes, don't we live forever? Listen, this is lesson one. You want to jump to lesson six? What is this? What? What is this messianic error? We're going to condense six lessons into one. We're not with Mashiach yet. We need to, we need to stretch. We need to, to develop this over the weeks. But anyway, there's a verse in, in Isaiah 65, 20, chapter 65, verse 20, that says that Vanar ben Meah that youth of a hundred will die. There you go. We're approaching that lifespan. It's not, it's not far off where an average lifespan will be 100. It's really not that far off. So again, we find incredible, incredible leaps and bounds in this field. Now, in addition to increased lifespan, we are living in a world today in which disabilities can literally be reversed. And I feel like I want to show you a video for those that want to stay on after the class. I have a three and a half minute video with some of the most cutting edge technology that exists today. With disability, with dealing with disability, I don't know what the right term is, but kind of reversing the effects of disabilities. I, I, I'm excited to show this to you, but, I, I, but we, we only have a few minutes left in the class, so I'm going to show it to you after the class as an optional add-on for those that wish to stay and watch the video. But there are technologies and treatments that exist today that can in large measure reverse vision impairment, hearing loss, mobility disabilities, and speech impairments. Yeah, we're even talking today about voice transplants. It's simply amazing. It's simply amazing. Take a look at the following um, little snippets from the news. Um, I'm going to skip this. Here we go. Figure 1.10 or 1.10 on page 24. Brain implant allows mute man to speak. Artificial larynx to give mute a new voice. Voice transplants one step closer after scientists grow human vocal cords. These are from various... Um, various publications, various news clippings. Nonetheless, they, they, they speak to one of many advancements in medicine that we have been just absolutely privileged to experience over the last 
um, number of years, and that is this reversal of things that were otherwise previously disabilities that were just un, you know, just unmovable. And today we live in a different world, and it's so amazing, just as Isaiah prophesied in text number five, and I'll, I have my book open next to me, so I'm going to read it to you. We read this before, but I'm going to read it again. At that time, the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame shall skip like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing. That's Isaiah's prophecy. And you read that, and you're like, yeah, that's not happening. And then you look at science and medicine today, and you're like, well, that's actually happening. That's crazy, because it's literally happening today. And when I say literally happening, I really mean literally happening. It's literally happening today. For those that want to see the video, I'm going to show the video um, at the end of, uh, after the class is formally concluded. All right, let's continue talking about hostility. More than 2,500 years ago, the Jewish prophets envisioned a time when nations would no longer be hostile to each other. We had that before in text number six. Nation shall not, from, again from Isaiah, nation shall not lift sword against nation, nor shall anyone train for war anymore. And while the last century saw the horrors of two world wars and multiple other wars and conflicts, the number of state-sponsored wars and war-related deaths has plummeted since the 1950s. Let me share this, this, uh, these figures with you right about now. Take a look at the drop in state-based battle-related deaths since the 1950s. Dropped absolutely dramatically. Um, in fact, the UN Charter declares that nations may not use threat of force against one another. Text 14. I'm going to read this. Joshua Goldstein and Steven Pinker. War is really going out of style. That's the title of this article from the New York Times. Here we go. Armed conflict has not vanished. And today, anyone with a mobile phone can broadcast the bloodshed, but our impressions of the prevalence of war stoked by these images can be misleading. For centuries, wars reallocated huge territories as empires were agglomerated or dismantled and states wiped off the map. But since shortly after World War II, virtually no borders have changed by force and no member of the United Nations have disappeared through conquest. Perhaps the deepest cause of the waning of war is a growing repugnance toward institutionalized violence. Brutal customs that were commonplace for millennia have been largely abolished. Cannibalism, human sacrifice, heretic burning, chattel slavery, punitive mutilation, sadistic executions. Could war really be going the way of slave auctions? I think this is stated so powerfully the idea that there is today a distaste for war, by and large, and violence, and, 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 and just horrific things being done. Back in the day, it was normal. Back in the day, it was absolutely to be expected. In fact, you ask somebody, so where did your family come from, uh, from the old country? They'll say, yeah, from this shtetl. Oh, which country? Well, once upon a time, it was in this country, and then it became that country, and then it was the other country, right? The borders were moving. 
The borders were moving because war was happening where nations were lifting sword against nation. And today, that's not what we have. Today, that's by and large not the case. War is, to a large extent, going out of style. The U.S.-Russia 1991 Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty went a long way toward reducing destructive, right, mega-destructive weaponry. Um, I'm going to share my screen with you once again to look at some more facts, to look at the data. Estimated global nuclear warhead inventories from 1945 to 2020. And it peaks, and then it drops. And it drops due to the actions and the treaties taken by nations. In 2021, nuclear arsenals of the U.S. and Russia are just 6% of what they once were. This is what we call hashtag progress, hashtag gains. This is, we're, we're getting somewhere with this. And now the governments aren't waging wars as they used to. They're using more and more resources, military resources, for useful and peaceful purposes. Think about how in 2004, the United States used military space satellites to help aid Indonesia after the tsunami. Or how in 2018, just a few years ago, Thailand used their special elite forces to help rescue the junior soccer team that were stuck in a cave. And in 2021, this year, the United States and many other countries have used military assistance to help with COVID relief, aid, vaccinations, etc. It's incredible to turn military resources into life-saving resources, war into life. Even China's getting on board. Text 15 talks about how the Chinese army is planting trees. We're not going to read it inside, but there's your text, text 15. So that sound that you hear, it's Isaiah quelling. It's Isaiah just his heart blooming with nachas because he writes that nations in the Messianic era will no longer go to war against nations. And he writes that nations shall beat their swords into plow blades and their spears into pruning tools, transforming weaponry into life-giving tools. And that's what we've seen in the last number of years. Let's look at one more area of the data, one more area of the science, which is about violence and violent crimes. The question we posed before, there was well, we didn't pose it necessarily in the class, but I showed you um, the data that came in from polls, what people think about violent crimes. And by and large, I think we had upwards of 85% of people believe that violent crimes get worse year after year. And yet, here's the data. Let's start with Europe. Let's start with some Western European countries. Okay? Homicide rate. Now, this goes back to the 1300s. That's a long time ago. But look at how the rates plummet. In various countries, you can see the color coding at the bottom. You have, you, listen, you have it in your book. I sent you the PDF. You can pour over the science, over the data yourself. That's a steep decline. Take a look at this text, text number 16 on page 30. In 2019, according to a survey conducted by Gallup, about 64% of Americans believed that there was more crime in the U.S. than there was a year ago. It's a belief we've consistently held for decades now, but as you can see in the chart below, we've been just as consistently very wrong. 
crime rates do fluctuate from year to year. In 2020, for example, murder has been up, but other crimes are in decline, so that the crime rate overall is down. And the trend line for violent crime over the last 30 years has been down, not up, etc. There's a lot of uh, details here, but we're short on time. So I'm going to summarize it by saying as follows. The perception is that the world is a much worse place than it actually is. The data shows that the state of the planet, planet Earth, is getting much, much better. We are improving in so many important areas. In the area of poverty, in the area of food, water, health, longevity, peace, and safety. So then why is it that so many people believe that things are getting worse? Why is it that some of you may still believe that the world is getting worse? And I said this before. Media plays a large role, but there's a, the news plays a large role. Because, but again... To their, to their defense, they have to make a buck. They have, they're in it for money. They're not nonprofit. If they were nonprofit, that was one thing, but they're not nonprofit. They, they get paid by ads, by eyeballs. And when they have good news, typically people are not watching, and that's the way they can't survive. So listen, they have to do their job, but you and I don't need to be sucked in. We don't have to be part of the, you know, part of that. I mean, I'm not saying don't get news, but just take it with a grain of salt. But there's another reason why. We typically think things are worse than they are. And this is what we call the missing tile syndrome. There's a beautiful, maybe floor, maybe wall with tiles, ornate tiles, thousand tiles, and one is missing. You know what you're going to be looking at? The one missing tile. We call this the missing tile syndrome. The eye focuses on what's wrong. You have a book. Beautiful book, but there's a typo. Aha, I found a typo. What were they thinking? Who proofreads this? How could they let that slip by? Right? The eye, for better or for worse, focuses on the problem. But that doesn't mean, even as we focus on the problem, that problems that still exist, that doesn't mean that we haven't made incredible progress. Despite all appearances, there is a preponderance of good in the world today Good is trouncing the not good. It's not even close. And so, so now we've arrived at the end of our lesson. What we've seen today is how Judaism has a very specific vision of the end of days. It's not doom and gloom. It's not apocalypse, right? It's not Armageddon, but it's rather a time of goodness, a time of prosperity, a time of blessing, a time of healing, a time of peace, a time of serenity, a time that honestly you and I would love to live in. And then we discover today the big idea, and that is that we're closer to this beautiful reality, this messianic reality, we're closer than we think. We are living in simply incredible times. Take a person living 500 years ago, 400 years ago, 300, 200, even 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, and transport that person, him or her, today to our times, and they would tell you, oh, this is Mashiach. This is what we thought. This is Mashiach. The blessings we have are astounding. The prophecies are literally being experienced in our lifetime.
All we need to do is simply open our eyes. Thank you for joining me today for lesson number one of This Can Happen, a positive, well, let me read the actual, uh, a credible case for feeling good about the future. I hope that today has established the first movement in feeling good about the future. Judaism is fiercely optimistic, and we are seeing that transpire in front of our eyes. Next week, the class is entitled, Who Needs a Redemption? Today, we spoke about the physical dimension of the Messianic era, but there's also a spiritual dimension. Next week, we look at what a spiritual utopia looks like as we answer the question, who needs a redemption anyway? You do not want to miss this as we speak about the more spiritual and mystical meaning of the Messianic era. All right, that's it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed. Let's do a few minutes of questions. Let's do maybe like... If there are, I don't know if there are, thank you, thank you, maybe two, three, or four minutes of questions, and then I want to show you the video, which is just incredible about the modern advancements in, uh, in, in medical breakthroughs. All right, jump in, feel free to unmute yourself, and uh, jump into the conversation, please. Anybody? Ari, I just, Ari, I just wanted yeah. to say that that's why we have such good football now, reduces the wars. That's why we have good, wait, say it again. So much good football because the wars are now reduced. The football takes the place of fighting. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, maybe. Right. We have, yeah, that's, listen, that, that brings all sorts of other questions, but whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside. It was a joke. I know, I know, I know. Don't worry. I'm, I'm with you. We're on the same page here. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. I have, a, I have a question. Sure. Why do you think that the news are, are so focused in the bad things? That's a good question. I think part of that is that the news knows that people watch when they feel like their life is in danger. Like when a person feels like you know, something could happen terrible at any moment, then they, they're, they're, they need to watch to make sure that they're safe somehow. Whereas when you tell somebody good news, I'm like, okay, good. All right, so then if everything's good, I don't need to watch the news. But if it's scary, I need to watch. I, I'm giving a very cynical take on this, but I think it's, you know, viewership. More people watch when there's bad news. Like uh, Jerry said before, there's a, there's a phrase that's said here, here in the U.S., if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, what's the first news report that you, on the news broadcast? What's the first story? The murder, the violence. It's, it, gets more, it gets more eyeballs. So, I mean, that's one perspective. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, th I, think, I think that's a large, a large part of why the news is. But again, I don't have any, in Hebrew we would say tainus, I don't have any you know, complaints. The news, I don't even think it misrepresents itself. The news is saying that we get money based on advertisers, which pay money based on how many people watch. And so we're putting out a product that's going to be profitable. And that's very different than putting out the reality of the full picture. I don't know if they ever claim to present the full picture, because if they presented the full picture in the news, it would be, do you know what happened? Do you know what this teacher how this teacher helped that student today. 
and you know how this neighbor helped the other neighbor, and you know how the, I mean, you would have a, a full news broadcast of good stories. Unended. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even have an end to the good stories because there's so many more good stories than horrible stories. I, I, I mean, the good stories literally don't end. You could fill up 24 hours a day with just good news. The problem is they, they've done studies. People don't watch. I believe the New York Times, I could be wrong. I think it's the New York Times. They did a feature once a week, just somebody jump in if you recall this, called something like about good news, and they did it for a few years, and then they stopped it because not enough people were paying attention. Like they try to do good news, and it's like, hey, no one cares. It's not that we don't care. It's not that we don't care. Good news is good, but you know, it's good, okay, if everything's good, <laughs> so then let me know when it's not. You know, let me know when I need to know. That's the perspective. But we're missing the, the bigger picture, which is the world that we live in today I know I'm repeating myself, but it is so incredibly progressed in a, in a beautiful way from where it was even 20 years ago. So I want to share a video, which I think you're all going to love. I mean, it's, I can't imagine how you wouldn't love this. Let me find it. I think this is it. Um, optimize for video clip, share sound. Okay. I hope this works. Here we go. I'm going to share. It's a three minute video, three and a half minute video. Boom. Oh, wait a second. Hold on. Hold on, hold on. Looks like I need to put in. Okay, can you guys see like a blank screen? All right, but you know what? Thumbs up if you can see when the video actually plays. Let's see if this works. Ideas are the currency of MIT's media lab. The lab is a six-story tower of Babel, where 230 graduate students speak dialects of art, engineering, biology, physics, and coding, all translated into innovation. The media lab is this glorious mixture, this renaissance, where we break down these formal disciplines and we mix it all up and we see what pops out. That's the magic, that intellectual diversity. Hugh Herr is a professor who leads an advanced prosthetics lab. And what do you get from that? You get this craziness when you put like a toy designer next to a person that's thinking about what instruments will look like in the future next to someone like me that's interfacing machines to the nervous system. You get really weird technologies. You get things that no one could have conceived of. Everett Lawson's brain is connected to his prosthetic foot, a replacement for the club foot he was born with. The very definition of a leg or a limb or an ankle is going to dramatically change with what they're doing. It isn't just whole, it's 150%. You feel directly connected, huh? Yeah, when I fire a muscle really fast, it makes its full sweep. Her's team has electronically connected the computers and the robotic foot with the muscles and nerves in Lawson's leg. He's not only able to control via his thoughts, he can actually feel the designed synthetic limb. He feels the joints moving as if the joints are made of skin and bone. So you're gonna test on For Professor Hur, necessity was the mother of invention. 
He lost his legs to frostbite at age 17 after he was stranded by a winter storm while mountain climbing. Through that recovery process, my limbs are amputated. I designed my own limbs. I returned to my sport of mountain climbing. I was climbing better than I'd achieved with normal biological limbs. That experience was so inspiring because I realized the power of technology to heal, to rehabilitate, and even extend human capability beyond natural physiological levels. You developed the legs that you're wearing today. Each leg has three computers, actually, and 12 sensors, and they run these computations based on the sensory information that's coming in. And then what's controlled is a motor system, like muscle, that drives me as I walk, and it'll be to walk at different speeds. What will this mean for people with disabilities? Technology is freeing. It removes the shackles of disability from humans. And the vision of the Media Lab is that one day, through advances in technologies, we will, we will eliminate all disability. Okay, uh, did you, were you all able to hear that? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything else that I can say that, uh, that says it better than, than that little clip says it. It's, it's astonishing and it's incredible. It's one thing to talk about or even see charts, and I know we did a lot of charts tonight. It's not gonna be like that in the other classes. The pulpit was to establish things based on data tonight. Um, but it's another when you see video when you see people, and that surprise that that professor is a guy who also has the prosthetic limbs. That was like the big reveal in that clip over there, in the middle of that clip. It's, it's, it's astonishing, and again, walking him kind of hop up, leap up those stairs. I have, again, text five. At that time, the lame shall skip like a deer. And if that's not that prophecy, I don't know what it is, right? I don't know what, what, what is that fulfillment of that prophecy. That is literally somebody who Otherwise, we'll not be able to walk, walking and skipping. And as the other fellow said, it's not 100%. It's 150%. It's better than the original. It's, that's what he says. I, anyway, this is, this is where we are. And we can choose to ignore it or not, not hear about it. It's not, I'm not saying we're choosing. It's, we can be you know, oblivious to it. But if we think about it, this is, this is what's going on in our world. It's pretty incredible. Um, we can't ignore the wrongs that need to be righted. On the contrary, the more that we see of what's right, the more light can be, sh can be um, fixed on those areas that are still dark and the more effort we can put in to correct all that needs to be corrected. Again, thank you for joining me tonight. I'm still here for questions or comments. Um, yes, Mindy, go ahead. Well, I mean, just the medical advancements alone in recent years has saved so many lives. I mean, for example, I, my first child was, I had to have a C-section because he was um, breached. So in the old, he was basically sitting butt first. So, and you're supposed to be head first. So in the old days or like when midwives would deliver a baby, I mean, if they came out butt first, they just, they didn't know. And you know, they think about how many um, babies were, you know, didn't make it. And also mothers who died in childbirth just trying to deliver that way. So it's amazing that we have the technology to have 
the ultrasounds, you know what's going on beforehand, you know exactly what positions they're in, and you can and have this surgery that can, you know, be a safe way to deliver a baby into the world. So, I mean, I thought about that a lot when I was pregnant, and that was the situation with me, was that how lucky am I to be in this day and age where that that's not really an issue. And in, in not that long ago, even when, before we had that technology available, and and um, women would just give birth that way, and and how many, how many children and mothers might have died in that process? So yeah. it's amazing, and just having like MRIs available. So when you're having surgery for something else, before they would just do surgery and kind of like once they're in there, you know, figure out what's going on. But like now we have X-rays and MRIs, and you know that can pinpoint exactly what's happening so it's just so so life-saving the medical advancements alone that have yeah and and i think i think we no thank you for sharing that i i i appreciate especially the personal um you know reflection on it and i and i have to say and i meant to say this in the class but certainly you've seen over the last year how with with covid19 and the vaccine and you know there's, I'm sure we can talk. We have talked, and we could talk more about you know the vaccines and the different technologies, etc. But the idea that we can create a vaccine so quickly and to allow people to uh, you know to and to save lives at such a rate is just it's something that what it's not even a conversation a few years ago. It's not even. It's not even. I can only revert to Hebrew words. I don't know. Like English fails me. It's not get there. It's not like. It's not even in this. It's not even the bulk. We can't even talk about it a few years ago. Today, it's a reality, and it's it's like it's mind-boggling. It's literally mind-boggling. We live in an incredible time, and again, the rate of acceleration of technology of advancements is exponential. You know the famous tradition about Sessa, the fellow who um, challenged the king of India or Persia, whatever it was, to uh, to a game of chess. You know this one. Well, the king, he was Persian or India. I don't remember which. King he was of, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tradition, it's a fable, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a, it's a beautiful thing anyway. So it says the king would always challenge people to chess, and there was this guy, Sessa, who was a master chess player as well as a mathematician and a philosopher to boot. So the king challenged him to a chess game, and he says, look, I'll give you a choice. If I beat you, you can either give me this sum of money or another option. Take one grain of rice, put it on square number one of the chessboard, and just Multi and just double it for each square as you go along. Well, the king said option two, because what's one grain of rice, right? What's one little thing of rice? Anyway, Sessa won, and by the time the math was run, yeah, so he owed like 16 quins. It's like an incredible amount of, of, of rice, like more rice than exists in the whole world that's ever existed in the whole world. It's like, because once you... You know, if you take a piece of paper, I know I didn't finish that, but I hope you got it because I'm not, I'm not going back into that chess thing. Listen, if you take a piece of paper, okay, if you take a piece of paper, oh, I wish I had a piece of paper here, and you I have a bunch of papers, my notes, but if you take a piece of paper and you fold it 20 times, I know you can't, but stick with me here. If you fold it, because every time you fold it, it doubles, you double that original. If you were able to do it 20 times, it would be as tall as the Empire State Building. 42 times, it would reach the moon. These are not fake numbers. This is legit. If you could, ta if you could take a piece of paper and fold it 20 times, Empire State Building. 42 times, hello moon. 
Where have you been all my life? That's legit. This, so wait, what's the point? Aha, uh -huh. the point is exponential growth. That's my point. I had a point here. Exponential growth means that things accelerate. And when, when they double, they don't double from where they were back in the beginning. They double from where they are now. And when they double again, they double from where they just doubled from. And so it goes up in an incredible arc, which is what we see today. Computer advancements are going to an incredible clip. I don't work for Apple, nor do I get paid on commission. Apple released a few months ago what they called the M1 chip. They announced today some new computers with the M1 chip. The M1 chip is, it has never been seen before in computing. It can run for 20 hours, stays cool, it has the processing power of what would require dozens of watts of, of power and energy for, and it runs low, low energy, low heat. It doesn't need a fan. I mean, it's just, listen, the technology that exists today is incredible. Anyway, um, who wanted to jump in? I feel like somebody wanted to jump in. I just, I just had, yeah. uh, in, in junior high, the, uh, the, the, the game was, do you want, want $50,000 or a penny double each day for 30 days? Yeah. Everyone took the 50000 but it was millions of dollars. Yeah. Oh, good. That's a, yeah, that sounds better than any of my examples. Good. Right. So a penny a, day, a penny a day doubled for 30 days or 50 grand. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Good. Great to see everybody. Hey, Drawer. Good to see you. Um, let's see. Oh, Karen. I didn't, I'm just looking at some folks that I did not welcome initially. Um, Karen... And Moshe, welcome. Good to see you. All right. Friends, it was great studying with you. I will tell you, if you heard me at the beginning of the class, I mean, I think we had an improvement for just me here tonight. I think this is Mashiach. I was struggling. You guys heard me struggling at the beginning of the class? I was like, you know, I don't know what that was. It was like allergies, a little asthma kicked in. Anyway, but I'm, I'm glad that I can, I can speak now. Maybe we should start the class again. I'm kidding. Guys, thank you very much for joining me tonight. It's great to see you. We have many doctors on tonight as well. Thank you all. Thank everybody. But thank you all specifically for all that you do for the sake of bringing life and healing into the world. I will see you next week for the spiritual side of the Messiah. See you next week. Well, I'll see you before then. But anyway, take care, everybody. All right, take care. Lala Tov, stay well. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you soon.